It is good to be here. Here we are in the middle of a string of summer hot days, and Sunday has come around again. In weather like this, I can be heard complaining that it's too hot to even think. But it takes more than 90-plus degree weather to shut down the thinking of a congregation like East Chestnut Street. Instead, someone comes out with an idea, and others follow right along. The other week, according to Mary Lou, it was the book, 101 Things You Ought to Know How to Do, that inspired her invitation on the listserv. Let's make a list of things everyone ought to know how to do. More than a few folks joined her initiative in that. The entries have slowed or stopped, but if it isn't too late, if that book hasn't been published yet, I want to add one more this morning. I get it from today's reading of Luke's Gospel, and you heard it introduce this special idea during the children's time. I propose that everyone ought to know how to pray the Lord's Prayer, by memory, preferably, as we did this morning, many of us. Today, Luke's Luke's Gospel gives us the prayer. It's the shorter version. Matthew's is longer and the one we usually pray in church. But uh, Luke's version contains the core. In fact, it is probably not the shortened, condensed version, but the original, basic one that we have in this gospel. Listen to it again. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. That's the NRSV version that you heard this morning. My Bible titles it the Lord's Prayer. It has also been called the Disciples' Prayer, the prayer of our Savior. Some traditions call it the Our Father, or simply the prayer that Jesus taught. Call it what you will. The disciples have come to a certain place where Jesus has been praying and they have been noticing. They make their request, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. We don't know how John taught his disciples, but we get to see how Jesus does it. Matthew locates this prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke puts it in a certain place. Throughout Luke's gospel, we come across a certain village, a certain lawyer, a certain woman, and a certain man who went down the road. It is almost as if the stories in these unnamed places are intended to transfer easily to another place and time. This is how I felt as I put this prayer that Jesus taught next to an experience that I had last week in another certain place. Last week, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, While there, I visited the 16th Street Baptist Church. I sat inside, listening to the story of that place. It has been described sometimes as ground zero of the civil rights movement. 16th Street Church has become a place of pilgrimage for many, 
but it was my first time ever there or in Birmingham. I was in high school when this church was bombed, and the, that's a ground zero that I really remember. The images became fixed in my mind, familiar through photographs, the neon sign on the corner of the church, the faces of the four girls who lost their lives in the bombing, the um, faces of the terrified mourners, and the strong number of marchers across the street in the park. Our guide introduced himself as part of the tourist ministry. In the year after the bombing, while the church was being restored, he said, the congregation received a gift. Turn around, he said, and look at the window in the back. That window was a gift from the people of Wales. The artist created an image in stained glass, a black Jesus. One arm is extended out, pushing against tyranny and oppression. And the other arm is also reaching out, but this arm is open in hospitality and forgiveness. The prayer Jesus taught seems uncommonly fitting for a place like 16th Street Baptist Church. Listen again. Your kingdom come. Forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. Across the street in the park, said our guide, you can follow, if you want, the footsteps of the nonviolent marchers. They are marked, so you can trace them. And a sign makes it clear this park is a place of revolution and reconciliation. It is as if the hands of Jesus himself had reached out in resistance and in forgiveness. This is how you should pray, Jesus told the disciples. He gave them the form and the words. Interpreting Jesus, the writer of Colossians says in today's passage, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities in him. The whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Rooted and built up, you have come to fullness in him. There is no question. This is radical prayer, and Jesus is is teaching with authority. Its tone is not unlike the themes that this congregation lingered with last year in its series on empire. I can practically feel the resistance in the Lord's Prayer. But what I noticed this week in Luke 11 is that Jesus puts the prayer alongside a story, a story of hospitality and grace. I have not been to Palestine, but some of you have been. And you have come back with stories of sweet hospitality from that place. Let's take a look at this story. It begins, if you want to have your Bible open, you will see to Luke 11, you will see that this story begins at verse 5. And it's much like other stories in Near Eastern folk traditions. A traveler moving at night to avoid the heat of the day arrives at the house of a friend late or unexpected. It is midnight. We can almost understand the heat this traveler is trying to avoid. 
he is hungry. The friend he is counting on opens the door, but he has no bread in the house until the next morning's baking. So now the friend, who has been cozy at home, goes out of his house on a mission, a midnight mission, to find some bread. I'm thinking, how does he know where to find this bread at midnight? But then I realized that baking was done in the village square, and the neighbors were all there. No need for a listserv to locate these three small loaves of bread needed for daily sustenance. They know who has the bread. So now this friend number three, unknown to friend number one, hears the knock at the door. But he's afraid of waking the rest of the family asleep on mats in the same room, the one room of the house. So he hesitates, but obligation and hospitality override, and he goes and answers the knock. This is networking. Someone I know needs something. I can't help, but I know who can. That's the basic story we have here. So who are the characters? I have heard it said that you and I are the ones knocking on God's door. If God doesn't answer at first, we should persist. If we ask, seek, and knock, eventually God will come and open the door. Eventually our mutually known but resistant God will come and answer us. So therefore, keep asking. The story could be taken that way, but Jesus' stories are many-layered, and I would like to try a different interpretation this morning. Let's try this. The friends in the story are just that, good, resourceful friends, networking in the best kind of Near Eastern way of hospitality. Think of your friends who will step up in your midnight hour of need. And then think, take it another step. If my friends can be that resourceful and gracious, then try to imagine how much more God will give good gifts. Taken this way, the story seems to be saying to invite us to think from lesser to more. This God to whom we are praying is even more trustworthy than the best friend we can possibly imagine. It goes from lesser to greater. Taken this way, we can see that Jesus is inviting the disciples into the very kind of intimate prayer relationship that he has with God. But this might be the very place where it gets tricky for some of us or for our friends. Someone has said you pray as well as your relationships, as well as the relationships you have. So that brings up a really big question. If you are told that God is more trustworthy than your best friend, but you cannot even count on your best friends, you have unreliable friends, how will you ever be able to pray? Not long ago, I was in a worship setting where the person praying addressed God as Father God. Not once, as in the Lord's Prayer, but often. Afterward, my friend said to me, how can that pastor do that? Father God, 
every other sentence through the whole prayer. Doesn't he know that half the congregation here are women and girls? Doesn't he see that there are girls here who have been mistreated by their fathers and they couldn't even begin to approach God as father? I shared the concern, and I am pondering this dilemma. In the Lord's Prayer, the word Jesus uses for father is strongly intimate and relational. The Aramaic word Abba is one of those rare words that you can spell the same going backwards or forwards. You've probably heard that before. For those of us who like to play with words, that kind of a word is called a palindrome. A-B-B-A, it's a name a toddler can say. It's kind of like Oma or Dada or Mama. It is meant to be warm and intimate. And in fact, it is a different kind of word than the word used to describe Father God, as in God the Father of Abraham or the Father of the Covenant, even though in our English translation we have the same word father in those places. So what do we do? Somehow the use of the, the name father in the Lord's Prayer sounds really different to my ears than the use of father God as the one and only name for God sprinkled throughout an entire prayer. Well, my main purpose for being in Birmingham last week was to attend a hymn convention with my husband, Glenn. And there I listened to some of today's hymn writers, some of their names are in the back of of our hymnal, struggling creatively with this kind of question. How do we name the struggle without becoming too literalistic and without losing the intimacy and the hospitality and the poetry of this kind of naming? Our human struggles invite us right back to that place where Jesus taught the disciples. And I need a little sip of this cold water. Last week from Birmingham, we traveled to Atlanta, where we visited with several nephews. Close by stands Stone Mountain, which is described as a natural wonder, the world's largest piece of exposed granite. Not sure if that's right or not. That's how it's advertised. We didn't get to see it, but my nephew knows the area very well. Not long ago, he stopped in that area at a Wendy's to buy his lunch. He ordered his food and he sat down to eat, and on the tables he noticed business cards, and so curious, he picked one up to look at it. And the realization dawned. What he was holding was a business card with contact information for the Klan. My nephew is biracial, and so I heard the catch in his voice when he said, I figured I better get out of there fast. Of course, Lancaster is not exempt from stories like these, but this close and personal story seemed all the more jarring to me because I associate Stone Mountain with the places named in Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream. Let freedom ring, he said, from Stone Mountain, Alabama, or Georgia, and that was a long time ago when he said that. 
In the ancient Near East, the midnight hour was often known as a time of danger, sadness, dreams, visions, and death. Teach us to pray, the disciples said. Jesus was teaching them in broad daylight, but their midnight hour was just ahead. What could they expect from God as they went through it? If your child asks for fish, says Jesus in verse 11, would you give a water snake instead of a fresh tilapia filet from Kathy's Seafood and Central Market or from the Sea of Galilee? If your child asks for an egg, says Jesus, would you give instead a scorpion rolled up into a ball that looks like an egg? Of course not. Unthinkable. When you see the fine parenting of mothers and fathers in your own congregation, and I have seen it here already this morning, can you also see how much more God will give good gifts? Think from lesser to greater. This is the kind of trusting prayer into which Jesus is inviting the inquiring disciples, and God's reluctance is not part of the story. Praying the Lord's Prayer is paradoxical, though, because when we pray it, we stand with Jesus, whose one hand pushes out against trial and evil, while the other hand opens in forgiveness and hospitality. This prayer seems uncommonly fitting for a congregation like this one that asks for and gets a whole series on empire. But how will we keep our balance in the middle of that? Last week I saw this bumper sticker, I am an NPR person in a Fox world. (laughs) Now there is one conflicted person. My nephew chuckled. I know that feeling. But in this teaching, Jesus is inviting us into something more. Jesus is inviting the disciples and us into a place that is paradoxical and yet centered. And better yet, he opens their imaginations to be ready for the very gift that will lift their hearts toward this trustworthy God. What is the gift? If your Bible is open... And if you run your finger down over this passage from verse 1 through verse 13, you won't get to this key word until the very end. The passage starts, of course, with a request, verse 1, and then comes the prayer itself, verses 2 to 4, and then the story of the midnight friend. Now we are at 5 through 8, and then the asking, seeking, and knocking, and now we are at 9 through 12, almost at the end. Finally, at verse 13, it pops out. There it is, the key word naming the gift. Listen, if you who are evil, what's that? There's a whole other sermon in that phrase. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. 
there it is, with the disciples in this moment, I take a deep breath. When I trust enough to ask, God gives what? Not my wish list that I have been standing with, but the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. This is the greater good gift that God sends into the world. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Spirit sums up all that is given to the community, joy, strength, courage for witness, and life itself. We are not on our own. The Spirit shows up at the end of the lesson to lift us into prayer, lift up our hearts, we said this morning, like a glass of cold water on a hot summer morning, or like the full moon rising in the July night sky. It has been there all along, but now it becomes visible and real. I want this gift of the Spirit for praying. There are times in my all-too-irregular prayer life when I want what Peter talked about this morning, a prayer of silence. I need it, a listening prayer. That, too, is prayer that I need to be taught. But this paradoxical prayer that our Savior taught is large enough for the whole world and intimate enough for parent and child or for friend networking with friend in their midnight hour of need. I think of the teenager who told me about her last hours with her dying grandmother, sitting with her grandmother, holding her hand. It occurred to her to pray the Lord's Prayer. The prayer was lodged deep in her grandmother's memory, and even though she could hardly speak anymore, She found the voice and the spirit to pray it with her. It was a good and beautiful gift. Lord, teach us to pray. If we ask, we will be led to the words, and even more, at the end of the lesson, the spirit shows up to lift us into prayer. Will you go there with me? If it doesn't mess too much with your more familiar memory of Matthew's version, I invite you to pray with me. We've already prayed this prayer, but I invite you to get this one into your ears, this version in Luke. And so I will give you one line and then wait for you to echo it back. Uh, If you're tired of sitting and you would like to stand to pray this, you may. If you prefer to stay seated, that's really okay, too. Uh, Sue said, let's not do too many calisthenics this morning. She told us out here. But if you want to even try this, you know, pushing out against resistance and the opening to hospitality and see how that feels, you might want to do that. Or just stand with your eyes raised or eyes closed or be seated. Take the posture you want. And I invite you to echo. This is our prayer. Our prayer of resistance and hospitality. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. Can you say amen to that? Amen. amen. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love. Send us Send us grace. Amen.